So, okay, well, let's open with a word of prayer, and then I will uh, we'll begin with just kind of introductory comments, and then we'll just jump right in, okay? Uh, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we do want to thank you for a beautiful evening that you've given us. We thank you for these fall days, um, and we know now each one of these is a, is a gift from you. We thank you um, for uh, the chance that we can worship together yesterday, and and we're grateful that we could come here in the middle of the week and to, to learn from the way that you have been working throughout all of human history and, uh, and how your gospel fits into to all of that. And uh, so, God, we pray that as we, uh, that we study, that you, uh, that you help us to, to see and understand um, these events, these persons, uh, these places, but uh, more importantly, these, these stories and, and, um, and doctrines and teachings, um, may, we can, may we understand them and um, learn from them and apply them uh, to our life, especially uh, as we move from uh, history to your word and see what your word has to say. Um, God, we just uh, ask you to Use that to, to teach us and help us to be um, faithful and committed disciples of yours in this world. And, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people say, amen and amen. amen. All right. Um, uh, so let me begin by uh, asking the question, why church history? And what... Uh, what better way to start than to ask you why you came? So I opened it up. Go. What was what is what was interesting about? And you don't answer. Don't say because yeah, I made you. <laughs> um, so just to kind of get a discussion started here at the beginning. Uh, what what is it that uh, intrigued you about the topic of church history, and or what do you hope? To uh, to learn in this study, Josh. I've never studied um, this like prior to twelve something, eighty, and um, I thought it'd be interesting for me and my kids to learn. Yeah. And Josh, I found out recently is a history major. So, was there a specialty? Did you have a specialty in your history? Like a special era or anything? I spent a lot of time with like the Great Schism onward. Okay, yeah. And we'll get, well, we won't get to that until the winter. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Um, anybody else? What, what is it interesting to you about uh, church history? Looking for parallels for uh, from then to now. That's what I was going to say. Curious to see, see how the, yeah. where it's. Like you can see similarities between like how churches are today and then like mm -hmm. what it was like. Yeah, I think you can see that like in That's Paul's like, letters and stuff. Yeah. You know, just things that are going on like, oh, you guys are doing this wrong, and getting called yeah. out. And it's applicable. Like you're right, like, yeah, oh, you're like, oh yeah, we're totally seeing totally. it. Yeah. 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 The same issues that are happening today. Yeah. We'll uh, I think we're gonna encounter that quite a bit as we study kind of this weird named group of people and you'll when we go, okay, and this is what they believed, and you're like, that just sounds like a group online or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. So good. I like that. Anybody else? Anything interesting to you about 
his church history. Yeah, Rosie. Uh, I think it's critical for understanding the canon. How, what's in the Bible? Why are the things that are in the Bible there? And why are other things not? And yeah. This is the context for that. And canon, by canon, we mean what? The books that are supposed to be in the Bible. <laughs> That's right. Not like a canon, like you love with a, you know. Two ends, not three. Cannonball, yes. <laughs> two, two ends, not three. So, yes. So, to learn... Uh, what's because is that a debate that that you've heard online? Like, which books of the Bible like are supposed to be in the Bible? Uh, maybe you've heard some debates online where people have said, "Oh, well, yeah, but the church didn't even have a, an official Bible until like the fourth century." Have you heard that? Right? The church didn't have a New Testament until then. Well, they had the Torah. Yeah, oh yeah, we'll they had the that. We had the Old Testament. Yeah. So you've heard that. So to Rosie's point, how how did how did the church how did we come to have a, a Bible, a New Testament? So good. Okay. I also wanted to say, like, there are all these people saying, like, oh, this is the lost book of the Bible. This is the <laughs> forbidden book of the Bible. You know, it's like, no, there actually aren't any more books of the Bible, you know. <laughs> If National Geographic gets really excited about a <laughs> discover lost Bible, good kind of that's usually a sign like eh. That's probably never good. Doesn't Catholicism have more books in the Bible? Yeah. Like their Bible? Two or uh, how many is it? Two or four? Oh, uh, it's like I think it's six. Six, six seven, eight. There's a couple of Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. First and second. As, yeah. I should know I grew up Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> just so you know. Just, just read it and believe okay. it. <laughs> Were there other prophets that didn't make the Bible? Uh, you're getting way ahead of us, Charlie. That's a couple. That's next week. That's a, like four. Seems like we went with like this last time. Yeah. <laughs> this is right. The, the men's study, it was like, Charlie kept asking these questions, so I know he's thinking, but I was like, Charlie, it's a great question, but we're going to get to that next week or two weeks. Or so, uh, but yes, we'll get to the question about which books are in the Bible. There, there were lots of other writings in the New Testament era. It wasn't just, you know, Paul's letters and Peter's letters. There were, there were other Christian books, and they had to go through a process to figure out which ones were in and which ones were not, and um, and what that process was. We're going to get to that in, uh, I think that's lesson three. I think it's lesson three. Yeah. Oh, were you, I thought you were. <laughs> Anybody else, or just kind of, any other reason that you're interested in being here tonight? Well, I, uh, I haven't uh, studied church history at all since probably seventh grade or something. Like okay. That. And uh, that was in Christian school, and uh, you know where I went. Church history started with Martin Luther. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, I've read read a few things, uh, you know, since then, and earlier church leaders, but not very much. So yeah. uh, I feel like I can learn some more. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the church has changed through the years, and you know, in 1500, it wasn't the same as it was in uh, 30 or 35. You know, so yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And so, how did it get there? Right. How did how did we get to the point where we needed a Martin Luther 
and the Reformation. Right. And there were other figures that were doing similar things at the same time. Too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, at least at least you got um, in a Christian school, you got some church oh, history yes. class. I think a lot of a lot of people probably never had a church history class, or like the um, I read the the there was an old. <clears throat> Charles Schultz Peanuts cartoon where one of the characters wanted to needed to write a paper on church history, and so I'm writing a paper on church history. My pa and so it would be good to go at the beginning. And my pastor was born in 1937. <laughs> That's unfortunately like how a lot of people think of church history. We have kind of a narrow view, and we don't. Uh, it's helpful to see the longer, the larger picture. And uh, so we're going to go through. Uh, we're going to start. Uh, tonight is going to be a little bit unusual. It's uh, The rest of the lessons will focus on an individual or a group of uh, people and what they proposed, what propositions they had about Christian beliefs or even some other groups that were probably not Christians uh, but had accusations against Christian beliefs. Uh, but mostly it's going to be kind of fringe groups in the Christian church that were presenting Christian beliefs. And they had uh, encountered conflict with other individuals or other groups of people in church history who were contesting them on their beliefs. And they ended up they're de essentially debating the Bible. They're, de they're debating the New Testament. They're debating the teachings of Christ and who Christ is. And a lot of what we see, even today, uh, in various fringe groups or religious groups, um, the, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes is right. There's really nothing new under the sun. <laughs> a lot of what we will see will be very familiar. And you'll recognize some of the things. It will be different names, different people, but some of it will be very familiar to you. And this is our story, right? The church, the Christian church's history is our, uh, is our story. And so it's helpful to know how it is we got to where, uh, to where we are. So, all right, a couple of things, uh, little um, things before we jump right into the handout. Um, and does everybody have a handout or at least sharing a handout? Yeah, something that you could, I think, do we have? If not, that's fine. I think we're out. I think we're, we're all out. So. And I'll make sure to print, uh, to print more next time. So as I said, this, uh, this one is a little bit different. We're, we're not going to be looking at individual groups and then the, we're not calling the heretics and the heroes. So why are we calling it this first 400 years heretics and heroes? Because a lot of the formation of Christian thought uh, was formed that way. It was via debate with these various groups and the and entire uh, church leaders were brought together for church councils to kind of hammer these things out. Like who is Christ? What is the nature of God? How many persons? What is, what is persons? What, um, what is nature? Uh, how, do, how do you have um, three persons that all have one nature? Well, how do you have two natures in the same person? Uh, all of those kind of things we'll be, uh, we'll be looking at, and we're looking at it through the stories of the interactions with these various groups. Today, um, I feel like it, we didn't want to jump in there cold turkey. What I wanted to do today was at least give us kind of an overview, a background leading up to the first century, which is the first century is referring to um, 
the year of the, the New Testament. And we'll get to the timeline here in a little bit. Uh, so the first century. And then, um, and then beginning next week, we'll start second century, the end of the first century and on. So a couple of things. What does A.D. and B.C. mean? Before Christ. Before, Christ. before Christ. We'll start with easy ones. Good job. Yeah. So before Christ and A.D. means? The year of our, in the year of our Lord. In the year of our Lord. Very good. Anno, yes. Uh, Anno. Autoimmune. Domine. Auto. Auto. So, which is Latin for year of our Lord, right? Okay. So all of history kind of divides into those two categories. Uh, now, if you look on your timeline, you'll see that it actually, the birth of Christ isn't year zero. It's actually 5 B.C., right? So if you look on your uh, timeline part, uh, I think it's on your the second page or the third page. 5 B.C., because, again, they were doing these years retroactively. In church history, they would kind of just say it would be the so-and-so reign of somebody, and they were able to piece this together. With great deal of accuracy, by the way, when we, by the time we get to the first century. Um, so, so a little house uh, housekeeping here. B.C. and A.D., and this is going to be really applicable to us for today. Um, a couple of other things to, to uh, I encourage you to have. If you have your Bible, does everybody have your Bible? Does everybody have a study Bible? Not everybody has a study Bible. Okay. Uh, Janet has one. I know, Paul, you have the same one. Jared, you have the same one. Right? Okay. Um, the timeline I gave you is actually in your guys' study. It might not be in yours, actually, because I don't know if you have the articles. But I think yours does have it. So if you have the ESV study Bible, you'll actually have that timeline in it. Uh, this What I have here is adapted from, from that. Um, so if you have a study Bible, I encourage you to bring a study Bible. If you don't have a study Bible, I encourage you to get a study Bible. Um, uh, but if you at least have a Bible, to bring your Bible with us, because we will be looking at passages of Scripture. Uh, we're not going to be just looking at the person's names, places, dates, and those kind of things. But tonight it will be kind of person's names, dates, and places uh, somewhat heavy. So let me give you an overview of all of church history. Um, and so here on your handout... We're going to date from AD 33. Why AD 33? What happened in AD 33? Um, Jesus died. Jesus died? Anything else? Jesus what? Jesus rose. Jesus rose. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Same year. <laughs> Couple days apart. Um, so AD 33, right? And then also Pentecost. It's also, you know, several weeks later, the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes. And the church mission starts to go from there. So AD 33, till about 431 AD. 431. Now, why did I pick that one? Well, there was a kind of a big church council that, that happened in 431, and that seemed like a good place to stop. So that's what we'll get to in the next uh, eight weeks. We're going to look from AD 33 to uh, AD 431. And then, uh, beginning in like February, March, we're going to do... Um, 431 to 1350. I know, it's a thousand, almost a thousand years. Uh, but we'll look at the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages. 14, 
And then the next section we will look at with where Clark's church history class began in the Reformation. The Reformation. 1350 to 1700. Now, wait a second. Martin Luther, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door in year what? 1517. 1517, right? So why 1350? Why do I date that, the Reformation to 1350? Well, you have to wait for that. We'll get to that. <laughs> and then the last one, uh, 1700 to 2020, I put modern and postmodern. Modern and postmodern period. I didn't catch what you called that first period. The what? Oh, early church. The first one was early church. Yeah, 33 to 431 early church. Then the Middle Ages. Then the Reformation. And then the modern. And I, I added like kind of postmodern to that. So, uh, modern, postmodern. So let's go through. Um, the backgrounds to the first century, background to the first century A.D. So we're going to look at the couple hundred years leading up to the New Testament era. Does anybody know when the last book of the Old Testament was written? Last book of the Old Testament? Old Testament, yeah. I'm sorry. Last book of the Old Testament. 400 ish? 400 ish BC. Yep, that's about right. So that's four centuries, right? 400 years from, uh, and what book was that, by the way? Malachi. Malachi. 400 years from Malachi to, to Jesus, actually a little more than that, a little more than 400 years. Um, Clark, you were right. The last book of the New Testament <laughs> was about 95. So about 95, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. So 400 years, what happened in world history between the end of the New Testament and then Jesus shows up? Everything, yeah, there's a lot of what, what goes on. So I want to break up the, that entire background into three uh, different, um, three key things to keep in mind in, the, in terms of the background of church uh, to the first century, leading into the church history. First one is the Greek background. This is the first one. Greek background. And then the key figure here is, anybody want to take a guess? Alexander. Alexander. Alexander the who? The Great. The Great. Alexander the Great. What are the years there? I didn't put AD or BC, but what do you what do you think that that is there? Key figure. Alexander the Great. BC. BC. So it's 356 BC. And notice how it goes. Kids, you notice how the BC dates work? They go from bigger numbers to smaller as you're going forward. Does that make sense? <laughs> so, they go backwards. Basically. Yes, it goes backwards. It's counting backwards. This is church history, not math. This is. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're just well, like I'm negative numbers in math. math. 356 to 323, how long is that? Thirty-three, thirty-three years, right? Or roughly. <laughs> so Alexander the Great lived to be thirty. I think thirty-two is what they usually call him. Thirty-two, thirty-three years old. 
What did, what was Alec, oh, first of all, who here is older than 33? Not me. That's a lot. Okay, so, so we, we cannot really aspire to Alexander the Great. He conquered mostly the known Western world by the time he was 32. He died at 32, 33 years old, and he conquered pretty much, so normally, before this time, there were like regional uh, major cities uh, or um, countries. Um, basing here in Athens, Greece, and all the way out to like uh, Macedonia is like right in this area. This would be called, later would be called Palestine, but this would be Judea. This is North Africa. Here's Egypt. Uh, you have the uh, Assyria, Persia way over here. Um, he conquered pretty much almost all of this whole thing by the time he was 32 years old. That is what Alexander the Great uh, was able to do. Um, what were some things, does anybody know, what were some of the things that, that Alexander was very passionate about? What's that? Naming cities? Naming cities? <laughs> oh, like, okay. <laughs> um, Philosophy and books. Philosophy and books, yeah, he was like not just a warrior, warrior. he was actually a thinker. Horses. Horses, yeah. He also, what was one of his main ob uh, objectives once he, once he had conquered all the way across this world? To make him Greek. Yeah, make Asia Greek again. So they were going to... <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry, that was bad. The original MAGA. Um, <laughs> So he wanted to make the entire thing one, basically one culture, uh, and to introduce one language over the entire region. And so, uh, what does anybody know what that process is called? Hellenization. Hellenization. So that's on the that's on your handout here. The key term is Hellenism or Hellenization. Which is. The, the, that's from the Greek word for, for Greek. That, the Greek word for Greek is Helen. Like Helen of Troy? Yes, Helena of Troy, yes. So he wanted to make the world Greek. He thought as part of controlling like his influence and having control over all of that, to bring all of Greek culture to the Middle East, to Persia, to uh, Iraq, and Iran, and Afghanistan, all the way that far. Now, uh, can you imagine nowadays, that's still, that doesn't seem like it would be easy to pull off. Uh, but he was able to do it with a great deal of success and was able to encourage Greek language all the way through all of those areas. Not that it was only Greek, they were bilingual, but it, uh, he was able to spread the Greek language all the way through um, his entire uh, empire. Uh, what, and what, uh, 
What impact does that have on the New Testament? A lot of what he did would have uh, an impact on the early Christian church. What impact do you think that that had uh, in particular for the New Testament church era? Creates a lingua franca, an obvious lingua franca. A lingua franca. What do you mean by lingua franca? A common language. Common language. Virtually everyone either speaks or can somehow access. And so a great deal of it's easier communication, uh, the trade routes, you have this common way of dealing with other people. Yeah. And what does that what impact does that have in the New Testament era in particular? With the New Testament. The writings are in Greek. All the Greek all the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, the early Christians were all of what ethnicity? Nationality. They were all Jewish. And so uh, what language did the Jews speak at this point? Aramaic. What's that? Aramaic. Aramaic. Yep, they spoke Aramaic. There's a long story behind that. Uh, they spoke Aramaic. They would understand Hebrew because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Uh, but they were also able to speak in Greek. And so the New Testament was able to be written in God's providence. The New Testament was able to be written at a time when the entire Western world all spoke that language. At this point, it kind of shifted. It was like there was a classical eras of Greek, but now this was what was called Koine Greek or Common Greek. So that's a very interesting thought, right? In God's providence, he waited until, or waited, or whatever, whatever role God had in this. Or coordinated. He, he coordinated. <laughs> um, and was able to utilize the time in which he was going to have Jesus come into the world and uh, his life, death, burial, resurrection, and the announcement of that to go out, and then to codify those writings in a language that everybody, everybody would know in the known world. I think that's a very fascinating, uh, fascinating thing to think about. Keep in mind the Greek background behind the New Testament era. What are some other things that you would think from what you know about the Greek uh, the Greek world um, would have an impact on the New Testament Christians in the region of Judea? Any other? The Greeks brought their mythology or their Greek gods and temples. And yeah. There was a whole religious... Uh, uh, could we call it a religious system? They had a, a theological system, right? Um, and so it was Zeus and, and all of the, the other Greek, Greek mythology. So that would have an impact on what was happening in that, that era. Um, let me give you a little account of what happened after he died. So with this, I'm going to have you turn to your handout, or to your timeline. In your timeline, let's go through some of these here. You can see Alexander the Great bringing in the Hellenistic Age. Um, he conquers through this area of Palestine, 333. Uh, he dies in 323. And all of his kingdom then gets kind of divided up into four different territories. Um, and they are listed there. What is, what is uh, the, the first one there is 
do you guys have this? Because I've edited it to make it fit all in the couple of pages. Antipater. Antipater. So you have Antipater, okay, which is over the region of Greece and Macedonia. So there was an Antipater who controlled over this area. Um, what's the second? You want to take a stab at the second name? Lysimachus. 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 That's as good as mine. Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> no. Okay. He took over Thrace and um, uh, I should have done Asia Minor. There's like I should have done this. Like there's a so like this is. This is Asia Minor. This is like Turkey. Asia Minor. Uh, so he took over this whole region here. What's the third one there? Seleucus. Seleucus, yeah. Um, again, your guess is as good, as good as mine. It's a long time since I had these courses. And he took power over Mesopotamia and Persia. Mesopotamia would be um, basically like where Iraq is, and Persia, and this part further. And then number four, anybody want to take a stab at that one? Ptolemy. Ptolemy. I know, I just like saying those. Ptolemy. Ptolemy. He, he was down here. So those are the two that are in your handout that you want to write down. Those key, um, uh, those key places or key regions would be the Seleucids, S-E-L-E-U-C-I-D. So one of Alexander's four uh, divisions would be the Seleucids, and then the other one would be the Ptolemies, P-T-O-L-E-M-I-E-S, Ptolemies. Those would be dynasties. Now, eventually, those go, um, they they kind of reduce down to three eventually. But the two that, that really factor into the history behind the New Testament are the Ptolemies who controlled Jerusalem for a lot of that period of time, and it's fairly peaceful and there's not very much incidents. Um, but then the Seleucids, a, a later Seleucid um, um, ruler, comes and conquers this whole area of Jerusalem, and so that's who controls it up until the Romans come. So that's important to, uh, to keep in mind. Those two groups, the, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. What else was Greek well known, Greece well known for? Can I ask a question on yeah. this? Yeah. Why does it say in Egypt and Palestine? Because I thought it wasn't called Palestine until the Romans left. Yes, that, that's correct. And I think... Uh, it may mention that where in that later down in the timeline, I think it mentions where it gets the name, but um, but that is the name that the Romans gave that region. Um, but you could say Judea um, would be kind of the narrower one. It gets so parsed up over time. Uh, there's lots of different names. We saw a little bit from Amos yesterday, right? So you remember all the different nations, like there were the Edomites. And the Ammonites, like all of those were really close. Um, they eventually get conquered and they conquer each other and then get reconquered. And uh, so a lot of activity is happening. But the term Palestine doesn't come until 70 something? Yeah, 70 something. Yeah. So I think it's I, it, the answer to your question is why is it sometimes when historical documents get called Palestine? I think that's just the Roman influence of the name. And so they're retroactively calling it that. 
I try to avoid calling it that when I can because of the modern associations. Yeah. With Palestine. But, Me too. Uh, but but before Palestine existed, historians would refer to that area as Palestine. So before the modern Palestine. Yeah, before existed. the whole modern Palestine movement. Yes. Uh, good question though. What else is Greece known for? When you think of Greece, what do you know? And don't say. Euros. Don't say euros. <laughs> Buildings. Architecture. Architecture. You're talking like the temples yep. for the, the various gods. Yeah, we're going to get into that here in a little bit. Good point. Huh? What else? Philosophy, education. Philosophy, education, culture. Yes, and all of those greatly influence one another. We could just say Greek philosophy, right? Socrates. Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> the Bill and Ted's reference. <laughs> so Socrates. Um, and then, did I have those spaces down there? Yeah, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Um, but here's a couple of other um, Greek philosophers that you should know about because they do... Um, they are influential in the New Testament era and the church, early church era. Um, the one is an individual named Epicurus, E-P-I-C-U-R-U-S, Epicurus. Um, and so Epicurean, you've heard of Epicurean? You know, there's Epicure, or there's even like a food website called Epicurious or something, isn't there? Like Where so. they get recipes and those kind of things. This is clever. Um, he founds a, a community, a little kind of thinkers community and a friendship community in Athens. And he actually is drawing on some earlier scientific theories that the entire world is made up of atoms. And, um, and so he taught, he was teaching, and the Epicureans taught like everything was kind of just composed of all of these atoms, and then when you die, all of the atoms will just, uh, that make up you will end up breaking down and then going, uh, returning back into its existence. So they were, they would be, what would we call them today? If you were to give them a name for the Epicurean, that everything is just these little particles and... Materialists? Materialists. Materialism, right? They just believe that matter was really all that, that everything, uh, all that existed. It was just, all of life was... Uh, based on the motion of these atoms. So that's the Epicureans. They believed in several other things, but they believed that the great uh, goal then of life was then to just kind of seek uh, pleasure and to avoid pain. Now, this is not to be confused with like hedonism that are just going to be wild. Like they just were, they just wanted to, um, to realize, like, just want to make life as good as we can while we're here. The second group is Stoicism. Stoicism. S-T-O-I-C-I-S-M. Stoicism. By the way, have you heard these terms before? Epicurean, we've heard. Anybody heard Stoicism? Or Stoic? Or have you heard somebody describe somebody as, well, he's pretty, very Stoic? What, uh, what, what do you think, what other words would you use to describe a Stoic person? Things based on logic uh, and emotional, uh, logical thinking, reasoning. Yes, logical thinking, reasoning. Like, huh? 
The Amish. <laughs> I was thinking Spock, but you know. <laughs> kind of like self-control, no indulgence. Yes. So a little contrasting with the Epicureans, right? So Epicureans like to you know enjoy, have pleasure, avoid pain. Um, the the Stoics were a little bit more grounded in like thought and logic and philosophy. But here, let me add a couple of more uh, things. And then I gave the list of some of the names of some of the people on there. Were any of them blank? So uh, Zeno, um, Eridus, Cleanthes, Seneca was Seneca was a, uh, was one that was very influential in the New Testament era. What's it say? When he went, when did he live? Yeah, four BC to sixty five AD. So I mean, that's basically a contemporary of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And so this is a very lively philosophy that existed at that time. Here's a couple things about it. Uh, it prizes logic, reason, indifference, uh, indifference toward pain, pleasure and pain. It uh, posited basically the oneness of everything, um, including God, including nature, including humanity, that all of it was basically a, a one essence. And that human beings, and in particular the human souls, were little sparks, like fragments or sparks off of uh, this thing that was sometimes called fate, sometimes called providence, sometimes called logic, uh, or the word, or reason. And so the goal for the Epicureans was to, hey, let's make life matter while we can. Let's avoid pain. Let's avoid... Let's, you know, let's do things that are fun and pleasurable. The Stoics, on the other hand, because of that underlying worldview and philosophy, they thought the main goal of the human life was to live in harmony with that reason. That you could either be living in harmony with all of it, or you could be living in conflict with all of it. You could be living in harmony and find ways and practices to live in harmony with all of this relationship or, with, or in the relationship with reason or uh, the law of nature or you'd be doing things that would put you at odds with the law of nature. So that was the stoicism. To give you a sketch of like the stoic thought. These are the two biggies. These are two, two biggies in, um, in the New Testament uh, in the New Testament era. Um, how does Christianity fit or not fit? Uh, how would you say, it, just kind of give me your thoughts here, what way is Christianity is similar to parts of what I described, and what would you say, boy, that doesn't sound like that would jive with Christianity at all. So, okay, you got one? It definitely seems to be closer to Stoicism at least. Okay, like yeah. The Epicureans were just about just self-focus everything's meaningless the only thing that really should matter is the meaning you create what you value but stoicism was more about discipline and self-control and it's at least the lesser of the two evils yeah okay so you'd say it probably leads a little closer to stoicism okay yeah good i like that but not not totally. There's some but at the same time, uh, Christ did create us to have enjoyment and fulfillment through Him, of course. Where obviously this, the uh, Epicureans were not doing it because of a greater reason. It's just what you said, self-focus. So there, it's a weird like twist of perspective. 
Whereas, from a certain point of view, that is what the Bible teaches, you know, if, to some degree. So there's, there is a value, from a Christian worldview, there is value in the material world. Correct. But different than they would. Right. Yeah. Right. And why? Why is that? Well, because God created us to enjoy it. One of the reasons. Oh. Yeah. Good. And he created it. Go ahead and start there. He, he, right. he created it. Yeah. Any other... Any other ways that you kind of look at that and go, that, what, how, would the Christ, how would the early Christian message really line up with the main kind of philosophical things in the New Testament era? It would, would be uh, the difference that, uh, you know, the, the thing that the uh, Stoics were talking about with everything, you know, being its essence or whatever, and humanity is part of that, and Christianity saying there is a God, there is one God, and uh, that uh, you know it's not a spark. The soul is what God has given us. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems that does it seem like that's a little of more impersonal? Like God is a force. Right. You know, and whereas the Christian understanding would be God is actually personal. Right. He's actually a person that we can relate to. Yeah. So like apart from like the flaw of them not understanding God as being personal, it seems like they got part of that right in that like everything exists only in God, you know. Mm-hmm. Everything is constantly sustained by him. So there is sort of this oneness, but where they get it wrong is that God is actually <coughs> personal and not just some abstract idea. Mm. I keep hearing that guy from the video going at one minute. At one minute. Remember from uh, the second gospel? No. Oh, gospel. yeah. It's not a yes. tournament, it's at one minute. That's what I, that's what I feel like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we're at one minute. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm very similar. Yeah, uh, Richard Rohr is who yeah, you're talking it, about. Yeah. Yeah, Richard Rohr. As soon as you talk about that, I was like, "Oh yeah, that's yeah. that guy right there." There would be some, yeah, there would be some similarities. There yeah. would be some similarities there for sure. Yeah, already a bunch of red flags. <laughs> uh, so, any other thoughts then on how how do you think Christianity would bumping up against to these ideas in these worldviews? And then we're going to turn to the Bible here in a little bit. Well, I have a question. Sure, yeah, go ahead. You can tell me if this is too far off, but does how does Gnosticism fit in with these? Did it grow out of Yes, the we're two? gonna get into Gnosticism. I, that's lesson three, actually. Okay. So the so the Charlie one, yours is lesson four. So I know, <laughs> I, now I realize I told Stay you lesson you. three, but I know that one's lesson four and that one's that one's lesson three, that one's lesson four. We're gonna get into the Gnosticism, but yes. This evolves, and Gnosticism is, um, is it kind of shadowy it, if, as ideas that come from this, the, these Greek philosophies, but doesn't really kind of take form until like the second century. Um, but, the, but I think that the New Testament writers, many New Testament writers are addressing Gnosticism uh, in its... Seminal form. Yeah. 
but yes, it derives from this. Gnosticism is unique in that it's your, uh, there's a hidden knowledge that we have to access through, uh, through special means as opposed to where Stoics would have been following Greek influence. You could think, thought, you get, you know, um, there'd be a little bit of a difference there. But, okay. but we're getting into the, the Gnosticism in the third lesson. Okay. So is that good enough for now? Yeah. I'm just wondering if you, when you, when we get into it, will you talk about how it relates, if at all, to these? Like, yeah. did certain elements of these flow into and lead to Gnosticism? Yeah. Or is there a clear, like... They're completely different, no dependencies at all? Or? Yeah, no, I, it, it does draw from that and from a couple of other streams too. But yes, it's coming from that. Uh, it, I would say it comes more from the, the, the Stoic school. If it's coming from a school, it's coming from the, the, the Stoic school more. But, but it's a it's, big topic. It's, it's a big topic. It's also, it's also very Persian. There's Zoroastrian. Okay. It's a mixture of a whole bunch of things, but yes, it, it would have some similarities at least. Whether it's drawing from the school, there's at least some similarities there. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Gnosticism. And we, we, to, we were talking about the these ideas that have been out for you know, since the early church history. Gnosticism is everywhere today. It's, it's everywhere. So, this secret hidden knowledge. What? Star Wars is Gnosticism, yes it is, <laughs> uh, a little bit. Uh, the Matrix is totally Gnosticism, that's basically Gnosticism in movie form, yeah. Uh, we've seen The Matrix, like three people, four people. Everybody. Um, so um, let's go, let's look at a couple of passages, and I have some scripture verses there, and then I'll ask different people to read. Uh, as we've done this in the men's group before, we'll have people just read a couple of verses at a time. You don't have to read a whole paragraph, but a chunk of verses, and then somebody else will take over. Um, but Colossians, the book of Colossians, or Paul's letter to the Colossians, is dealing with um, these kinds of ideas. He's writing to uh, a city that is pretty influenced by Greek philosophy, so Colossae. As you're reading Colossians, you could read through that, and I encourage you to do that. Um, read through Colossians and then be looking for the references to kind of the philosophies that would be out there. In particular, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. I'll start by reading that, and then I invite some people to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, and some people turn to um, at, uh, to. Acts chapter 17, the latter half of it for um, Athens. So, but Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and, uh, of all rule and authority. 
So stop and think about that. How, how would that idea that if you are in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head. How would that sound in the ears of the Stoic? Or how would that sound in the ears of the Epicurean? The Epicurean would say, well, we're just made out of little atoms. It'll all break apart and fall apart and go back. You know, when we die, then it'll just go back into the entire system of the, the atom world. But what does that mean that it, he values our actual human body and bodily existence that Christ, by the Holy Spirit, dwells within us? Is that, that interesting to think about? How, that, how an Epicurean would hear that? Or how would a Stoic hear those words? He says, uh, make sure you're not captive by philosophy and empty deceit in human tradition. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right? So you're not, you're not by nature a spark of an impersonal force. But in Christ, you actually have God dwelling in you. See how the, the Christian worldview would be very different. First Corinthians, uh, well, let's look at uh, let's look at Acts actually. Let's look at Acts seventeen. This is on Paul's second missionary journey. He's going all across the world, and if you have a study Bible. Usually study Bibles have really good maps that kind of show you the journey, so I really, that's why I encourage you to get one. I always recommend the ESV study Bible, but there's other good ones out there. Um, then you can kind of see the map of his journey. He's going around here through Asia Minor. He's going up through Philippi, and then he's coming down over here into Greece. He's coming down to, to Athens. So in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, who wants to read uh, starting there. I can. Go for it. 16, how yeah. far? Yep, uh, just a couple of verses to stop, and then somebody okay. else will take over. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw the that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the, and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, "What does this blabber, <laughs> what does this blabber wish to say?" Others said, "He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection." Yeah, there you go. So stop, stop there for a moment. Now we're introduced to the who are the main groups of philosophers that the Apostle Paul has to deal with when he's in in Athens, right there in verse eighteen. Right? The Epicureans and the Stoics. Yep. They're the main ones. And so they call him a, a babbler, right? The, what is that? What's the Greek word there? Oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know that thing. One. I didn't want to say that to a lot of people. But <laughs> 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 uh, well, I want to say it in Greek. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so when Paul is there, what, what happens to him? What, what happens to Paul? How, would, how does it describe what Paul is feeling? 
He was provoked? His, yes, his spirit was provoked in him. Why? So the city was full of idols. Full of idols. So all of the, so Zeus and, and Helen and all of the other big idols, all of the temples that would be around there. Um, this was provoking to, to, to Paul. Why would this be provoking to Paul, by the way? Well, he was a Jew originally anyway. So yeah. that would be his, his mosaic law and teaching that he was grown up with. Yeah. And then, Which is? Only one. Oh, only one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You should not worship any one thing but God. There's yeah. only one. Yeah. 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 That's, that's right. Yeah, so good. that's exactly right. So he's encountering a lot of different things here, right? He's going on with the religious background with Zeus and all of the other pantheon of Greek gods that's happening there. Um, and he's speaking about Jesus and the Epicureans and the Stoics are there and they're, they're having to, to debate with him. This is, this is fascinating, isn't it? So what is it? what happens next? Somebody want to read um, to verse 21. For the, down from where Steve left off to verse 21. I'll do it. Go for it. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these, these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Yeah. It's interesting that Paul is actually giving them something kind of old right there. They wanted to, what is it? We've never heard of this stuff before. So, uh, verse 22. Uh, who are, are you or somebody else? Anybody? Go for it. Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all gives to all mankind and breath and everything. Thank you. And somebody else want to pick up from there. Verse 26 through 28. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. There you go, right? So he actually, then if you see the footnotes there, what do the footnotes say? If you have the ESV, I think if you have another translation, does it also have a footnote? Telling you those quotes. Where is he getting those quotes from? One is from Erastus's poem, Phenomena. Yep, Phenomena. Yep. Um, Eratus, he's on our list here, right? Eratus, along with Zeno, was a Stoic philosopher. 
Okay, and then the other one is, what do I want to take a stab at pronouncing that name? Yeah, Epimenides, I think. Epimenides. So he's actually quoting, he actually quotes from these two, um, these two philosophers. It's really a masterful fit of evangelism, like understanding where they're coming from, seeing the world from their perspective, acknowledging it, and then, you know, using that to shift and contrast it with the truth. It's pretty... Is it really? It's really pretty stellar stuff right here, isn't it? He's he's like he and like isn't, doesn't this resonate even with what your own prophets say? Like they're they would go, wow, he actually he's. I heard this term last week at home group. I'd never heard it before. Steel manning. Rosie said this steel manning, right? Which is the opposite of I, I just learned this. Does anybody else know this term? I heard it. I heard it like the next day. Somebody else said it, Good. and I was like, "Wow, this is a new a new term." It's the opposite of straw manning. So you you actually steal man. You present the straw man is presenting a fake, you know, a caricature, not the real position of your opponent. This straw uh, steel manning is actually. So he's actually. But isn't this kind of like what your own philosophers kind of say? He goes, but let me add some things here to the story that some things that you that you may not be uh, uh, familiar with. Look at what he says. He notices that there's a God and that he's a creator. He made the world. He made everything. Now, does this kind of conflict then with the, you know, the Adam view, the Epimenides or the, um, the uh, Epicurean view? Um, uh, he's Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served. He gives, he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. How this goes against the little, the stoic idea of like an impersonal force. He's more than just an impersonal force. He's a person who did this. It's really masterful. This is a beautiful thing. But then he goes on. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It really is masterful in a number of ways because he's entered into their world, he understands their position, and he begins to start. I love that he goes, oh, you have an inscription here to an unknown God. Let me explain this one to you. And it's like the foot in the door now with all of these other deities that are there. But let me explain this one to you. And he quotes from their own thing. He talks about the creation from Genesis 1, uh, the creation of human beings, and that we have dignity, value, worth, and purpose, the um, the Imago Day, and then he shifts and he goes right from there. He doesn't stay in just the philosophical realm and goes, and here's where we're going to stay. Like, this is where I'm in agreement with you. He goes, no, but I'm going to go on. Um, you shouldn't be making God into images. God is going to judge that, and he commands people to repent, and he's doing it through Jesus, and he goes all the way to the resurrection. It's really amazing, isn't it? This passage should be a very encouraging passage to us in dealing with, in breaking this down and how to deal with 
the philosophies and worldviews that we're presented with. To be able to find some kind, find at least some kind of common ground with them, but then to still be able to get to explaining the story. And not copying out, not selling out, and you know, but to go in, all the way to and explain it. Somebody want to read verses uh, 32 to the end of the chapter. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also were Dionysus, and, uh, I can't want to say he's and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. That's right. Dionysius the uh, Areopagite. Yeah. So I think that that's a reference to um, um, his role there on the Areopagus. So, so meaning he converted one of the philosophers there. Yeah. yeah. So, where does Paul go next? He goes to Corinth. Uh, and so he spends some time in Corinth, but I'd like for us to spend some time in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and 2. Actually, before we do that, let's go on. Uh, any, any thoughts or questions thus far? Yeah, Joe. So these two groups, did they, did they hold to the same uh, beliefs of deities that all Greeks would, or were they kind of pagan? Did they have in common, like, oh, we, we both, Zeus, we both, whoever, what was, what was their deity belief? That's a, that's a really good question to, to get to the, the actual, like, theology of what people believed at that time. Um, there, I, I think it would be more, it would, if I could use kind of contemporary language, uh, it would be, they were more concerned with like self-help than they were with like uh, God. So like the Zeuses, I mean, they would go and they would offer their offerings to the deities, but it was kind of like a you know, let's go through the motions for for many. I think oh, when you're talking about Athens, I think it was more. Um, they were more into the ideas. They would be more into the TED talks. <laughs> that would be their. Their, their thing as opposed to being religious if that if you can make a distinction between like they liked the academia they liked the thought they liked to try to explain the entire world but in terms of religious like we would understand like a personal God uh, and we would be have devotion in that sense that was probably not an emphasis yeah. although some were in other places I think in other places some were you know like so the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, I mean, religious, they were pretty religious zealots, you know. Um, but, but again, it's, um, that kind of gets to the third category here, in, in a, with the, the next, where we're still in Romans, oh man, we have, or we're still in the Greeks, we haven't got on the Romans, let's jump to the Romans real quick. <laughs> we'll, get to, we'll get to explaining a little bit of the religiosity um, and how the religious side of it um, comes because remember we're although we we were talking about the background to Greek philosophy we've already made it to the New Testament but now we have to kind of go back a little bit we need to look at the Roman influence not just the Greek influence but the Roman influence um, and to make this a little bit shorter because we're running out of time here um, the Romans 
see if we get look at our timeline here. It's a good place to. Um, uh, let's skip down to. Maybe 60, 80, 64. You know, Syria becomes a Roman province, effectively establishing Roman rule on Palestinian borders. Um, we're we're going to come back to some of the, the Jewish history there in a little bit. Um, but Roman culture, uh, actually, I think, by and large, they looked at the Greek Hellenistic idea, and they go... That's cool. We actually kind of like that. They just adopted the Hellenism um, of Alexander the Great and all the Hellenism that was taking place across the world. They go, well, we're going to take over. We're going to keep conquering, but, but we're, we really kind of like this Hellenism idea as a policy. So Hellenization, um, you know, it started with Alexander the Great, but it lasted for centuries. The Romans took that and adopted uh, that. Uh, I would say if there was a... Um, there's a lot of other ways we could talk about architecture. We could talk about roads. Uh, what are other things that you think of when you think of Rome? Gladiators and such. Gladiators, yeah. Are you not entertained? <laughs> you didn't get it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you do, though. <laughs> um, what, so gladiators. What else? Rome. Did you already say aqueducts? I didn't. Oh, no, right. yeah. Representative Good. government. Ooh, okay. The Republic. Senate. Yep. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we have a good example of it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, how long, how long did the representative government last in Rome? Right, right. What happened? Ooh. I am the Senate. Yeah, right. <laughs> Star Wars reference. That's like three movie references. <laughs> how does democracy die? You know how democracy dies? Yeah, I would say if we to to uh, to kind of summarize and focus here a little. There's so many different things that that the Romans I, they borrowed a lot of things actually from the Greek. They didn't just borrow the Hellenism. They actually borrowed the entire pantheon of God things too. They just renamed them. Yeah, they just renamed them. And so um, so instead of Zeus, it's Jupiter, right? So, um, so they did that. But I think in the architecture and buildings and roads and all of those things. Uh, but something happened uh, the, when the Republic dies and then you started to have an emperor. Something happens in the immediate aftermath of the first emperors. And uh, what would you guess that is? It's a really strange uh, confluence emperor of things. Worship? Emperor worship. That is a huge influence in the New Testament era, right? Because it wasn't just civics. It was the marriage of civics with religion. And so you had a civic religion in Rome. You had emperor worship. And so offerings needed to be made to, to the various, uh, various Roman uh, deities. This becomes a huge thing in the New Testament, uh, in the New Testament era. I have on there, what are the Bible references there? Uh, FF, by the way, means FF period after it means following. So like in following, this is just kind of. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, we're going to come back to that. Um, but um, Revelation chapters 1 through 3. 
in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, the Apostle John gets a, a vision. He's taken up into heaven, and he's get a vision of the resurrected Jesus. And then in chapters uh, 2 and 3, he has a message from the Lord to all of these various churches, these seven churches in Asia, right? What's, what is one key, what's one key factor about all of these church or these cities? They're all in, they're all in one location. Asia they're all Minor. in Asia Minor. They're all right around here. Roughly, okay? But what's the other thing? Every single one of those cities was a major site for emperor worship. Every single one. So emperor worship and uh, the call for Christians to not engage in the civic religion uh, was really a very important message in the later parts of the New Testament. To remain faithful to Christ apart from acknowledging the emperor as a god. That was a big that was a big uh, a big thing in the New Testament. We won't read those passages in Revelation chapters 1 and 2 and 3, but just know when you read those those messages to the churches, some are doing good, some are not doing good. He has he has good things to say to everyone and he goes, "But then I have this against you." But the backdrop behind all of them is this idea of emperor, emperor worship or what's also sometimes called the imperial cult or the imperial cultus. So emperor worship is a key um, thing backdrop behind the, um, the Roman background to the first century church. And then number three, let's look at the Jewish one, the Jewish background. So number two is Roman Number one was Greek, number two was Roman, number three is the Jewish background. Now let's go back to our timeline here a little bit. Uh, is anybody very familiar with the intertestamental history? You know, at all? At all? It is a fascinating... Uh, it's a very fascinating time that happens here. But let me just run through a couple of these key events. We already talked about Alexander the Great. We talked about how when he died, his entire kingdom was broken up into four smaller kingdoms. And then they end up getting consolidated down into three, um, three kingdoms. The Antigonid Kingdom in 277. Uh, the Ptolemaic Dynasty in Egypt. And the Seleucid Dynasty in Syria. So Israel is caught. Let me just kind of just kind of do this. So the Seleucids and the Ptolemies down here. I just always think of uh, um, the S for Syria and the PT for Egypt. Aha! <laughs> so I had to remember it in school. Um, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And so it started with the Ptolemies kind of had control over this area for a while, and it was fairly peaceful, and then eventually the Seleucids come. And then look <coughs> at a couple of these. Antiochus. Does that name sound familiar, by the way? Yes. Antiochus? You know why? What Do you know why it's familiar to you? Uh, Epiphanes. He's yes. the one who put the pig in the temple. Oh, yes. So look at 74. So there's Antiochus the first, Antiochus the second, Antiochus the third. These are Seleucid, kind of uh, Syrian, Greekish Syrian kind of kings. Um, and then there's Antiochus the fourth, um, and he takes the name 
Is it on there? Is it in your timeline? It says down there at the bottom. It says Antiochus IV takes the name Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. But his enemies would call him Epimanes, which means madman, which he probably was. The thing that um, the thing that uh, Brandon is referencing right now is in 168 and 167. Antiochus IV Epiphanes led into the sanctuary by the high priest Menelaus. He desecrates the temple in Jerusalem. And then on um, Kislev, which would be either November or December, uh, 25th, 167 B.C., he took an idol devoted to Zeus or Jupiter and was uh, erected it in the temple. And this is what in Daniel is referred to as that, uh, the abomination that makes desolate. And Jesus also references that the when you see the abomination that causes desolation, he's referring to the uh, a similar desecration of the temple in Jerusalem, like they saw in Daniel. Uh, and so this causes a big uh, revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. After the Maccabees, you can see the names of the Maccabees there. Uh, the father was uh, Mattathias. Um, he had Judas. You scroll through here, you can see a couple of the other uh, names. There's a Jonathan there. Um, there's a Simon. Um, so there's a Jonathan, a Judas, a Simon, um, and the father, um, Mattathias, which is a variant of Matthew. Anything in interesting about those names, by the way? All of these were different rulers and kings that were fighting against this Greek, uh, this Greek Seleucid occupation down in uh, thing. What were similar? What you recognize anything about those names? That's right. Those are heroes. These are Jewish heroes. The Maccabean family that were able to kind of drive out these pagan kings out of Jerusalem. The whole um, the Jewish festival of Hanukkah is the miracle that they kept the lights burning on in the temple when they didn't have any oil after they drove them out. Right? That's not an Old Testament festival. That's an intertestamental festival. Um, Hanukkah is. But notice the names. They're Matthias, a variant of Matthew. These were all heroes. And so look at the disciples. You had a Matthew. You had two Judases, right? You had two Simons. Yeah, to Jonathan, yeah, that, that's a variation of, of, uh, of John. So that was a huge background to the, to the New, Testament, uh, New Testament era, too. And so the feelings that Jews would have uh, uh, against a foreign occupation over their land was very strong, was really, really very strong. Um, and so that carried over even into the New Testament era. So let's look at a couple of the groups that came up at that time. So there were so a couple of main Jewish groups were the um, under those four categories there you could add Pharisees. You guys can probably guess the rest, right? Sadducees. Sadducees. Anyone want to go for the third one? Scribes. Scri oh, that's good. That's good. I would put the scribes, they would be included with the Pharisees. Okay. 
They're, they're different than the Pharisees, but they're included with the Pharisees. But yes, that's a good one. But I, that's not what I had on the third line. Third line. Zealots. Zealots, yes. Good. So zealots and Essenes are the same? Uh, no, the Essenes is the fourth one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I had, uh, the Essenes is the fourth one. So the Pharisees, uh, they resided pr primarily in Jerusalem. They had three different schools. We won't get into all the different schools now, but there was the school of Shammai, the school of Hillel, uh, the school of Gamaliel. Um, the Shammai school was more conservative. The Hillel school was more liberal in terms of their interpretation of the scriptures. Um, uh, Gamaliel was a, a either, we don't know whether it's a son or a grandson of Hillel, uh, but he was a known, te uh, a renowned teacher in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul was a disciple of who? Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Yep. The Jewish calendar, I didn't know this until recently, that Gamaliel did the, he actually did the Jewish calendar with the 12 months. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, and so the Pharisees, they, they had a great deal of uh, control over the scribes, which is why when the Gospels you'll see Jesus interacting, it says, and the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were kind of a subset of the Pharisee group. They were the kind of the lawyers. They were the, 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 the law, legal, mosaic law lawyers. Um, the, the Pharisees believed, uh, they counted as their scriptures the five books of Moses, as well as the writings, and as well as the prophets. Um, let's see here. Could go through some of the interactions of Jesus with them. They were, you, you could think of them being very stern and stringent in following the law of Moses because they believed, and they actually believed that the resurrection life would be given to them as a reward for their obedience to the law, which is why they would strain out an am, uh, a gnat uh, out of what they would drink. This is why they would pinch off 10% of their spices, and they would do those kind of things. The things that you know that Jesus kind of uh, um, critiques them for in the Gospels. Can you repeat what you said the belief was that led to those? Uh, they did believe that the resurrection, they believed in the resurrection life was attained as a reward for righteousness in this life. Yeah. Uh, the Sadducees, on the other hand, let's go to the Sadducees. They were very wealthy. They were um, priestly fam uh, families in Jerusalem. At the time of Jesus and in the New Testament, we believe they had control over kind of the temple at the time. Um, the uh, Roman historian Josephus claimed that they were very unfriendly and unpopular. Um, these were these were very wealthy elite. Think of these as like the Harvard, like the one percent, you know, or something like that. The the elites of the society. Uh, they're small in number, but um, large in influence. Um, when Jesus up ended the uh, the tables in Jerusalem and changed, scattered the money changers out. Who was this really basically an attack at? The Sadducees. The Sadducees. This is because they were the ones that were the wealthy ones in control of the temple operations. Um, they, they rejected a lot of the traditions of the Pharisees and they actually rejected, they, they only believed in the first five books of Moses. Uh, I think they rejected a lot of the later. Uh, parts 
which explains why the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Um, because there's no mention of the resurrection in the first five books of Moses. The mentioning of the resurrection comes in the later New Testament, comes in the Psalms, comes in Daniel, uh, which they didn't believe was authoritative, and so they didn't believe in the resurrection, and as my professor said, that's why they're so sad, you see. They're waiting for it, yeah. <laughs> Need to have you back there to draw this. Um, and so, when, and remember, in, uh, let's uh, look at this passage, Mark chapter 12. Somebody turn to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Jesus is arguing with the Sadducees um, about the resurrection. Mark what? Uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And you don't have to read all of it, but if somebody will pick up wherever Rosie stops. Oh, I was volunteering for my kid. Oh. <laughs> um, and I've got NIV, so. Uh, no, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't toss me off. <laughs> then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Oh, pause there for a second. So when they, he just has said at the beginning that they don't believe in the resurrection. And so when they ask the question, he, they lay out all of this argument and they say, so at the resurrection, they're clearly trying to you know, debunk the resurrection, right? And so, um, so when they say at the resurrection, they're saying, well, according to you, at the resurrection. <laughs> They're just trying to create the most absurd scenario possible. <laughs> it's it's it like, is, this yeah. is social media. This is like, this is, this is real life. It's, it's like a, that anti, uh, that pro-choice argument that's like, well, you're at a fertility clinic and there's a fire and you can rescue a five-year-old <laughs> or you can rescue a thousand embryos. Which one are you going to pick? You know? <laughs> Teacher, what do you say? <laughs> oh, man. So what does Jesus say? That's a great example, by the way. What does Jesus say? Anybody want to take over from there? I have the NIV too, so I'll keep going. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read the other <laughs> Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Okay, wow. I mean, yeah, how, how good is Jesus right here? And a number of levels. One, he could have quoted from Daniel chapter 12, which says, um, quite clearly, 
At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is in charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never seen until the nation, uh, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people will be delivered. Everyone who is small will be, uh, everyone who, whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. I mean, you could have quoted that passage there. But why didn't he quote Daniel? They didn't believe in Daniel. They didn't believe in Daniel, right? They're like, Psh, you're done. Yeah. Well, I could quote Daniel. He's like, well, we don't, we don't count Daniel as authoritative. What does he quote from? Torah. He quotes, he Moses. quotes from Moses. He actually mentions Moses, yeah. right? It's, it's uh, actually Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. So it's, the, the, it's, it's a verse in the scene where... Uh, the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush. And he says, you know, do not come near, take off your sandals on the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. How, but how is, how is Jesus using that verse in that argument? How does that verse make sense in his argument? attention to the verb tenses because I am the God of Abraham but they were already dead Abraham was dead I'm the God of Isaac I'm the God of Jacob they're all dead but uh, but I'm still alive and they are alive <laughs> they have they, that's the the implication Jesus is saying there really fascinating so that's the Sadducees Jesus runs into the Sadducees quite a bit any questions on the Sadducees I just love that, that story. And the last group is the Essenes. The Essenes. They lived in very communally. Um, and there was actually an Essene community near the Dead Sea. What is so significant about the Essenes community at the Dead Sea? Or the name of the city, if you know the name of the city. Qumran. What's significant about Qumran? Dead Sea Scrolls. And what's significant about the Dead Sea what, what happened? We know the story about the Dead Sea Scrolls? It was a shepherd boy that uh, found them uh, for some reason that he was up in one of the caves and found the scrolls. Yeah. So if you, had, you didn't know the story, there was a shepherd boy in 1947. Right around when Israel was founded as a nation, or maybe 48. Israel was founded in 47. I think it was the next year. And I think the story I heard was that he was getting his goats or, you know, something and throwing rocks and threw the rock in the cave and heard pottery breaking. And so he went up and found it, and then they bring the team over there. And they, what did they find? They find scrolls from every Old Testament book in Hebrew that date to the first century. To Jesus' age. Now, up to that point, what was the earliest Hebrew manuscript that we had? Or when? When was the earliest Hebrew manuscript that we had? Roughly 1,000 A.D. 
So these, what he finds, shifts it a thousand years. We they found scrolls that predate when they were a thousand years earlier than what we had that we had. It's a very significant find, and it matches up nearly identically. And all of this. Critical scholars said, oh, we were wrong and became Christians, right? <laughs> Fortunately, that did not happen. They ran to National Geographic. They find other documents. Um, that was probably the most significant goat in history. <laughs> Just wandering into some cave somewhere that ends up, you know, with, with the discovery of new... Oh, n- <laughs> old documents. It's amazing. Yeah, that's a really good point. The, the most significant goat in history. The only significant goat in history. So the uh, so the Dead Sea Scrolls were found there and boy, thank you thank the Lord for his providence that he had this group that wanted to live righteously. They wanted to kind of pull away from the the pagan society. They were very critical of the ways that even the Sadducees, uh, in particular, were just kind of marrying themselves to um, to the uh, to the Essene um, or to to the pagan Roman culture. So they wanted to kind of separate themselves, go out into the wilderness, have um, have community there. They shared all things in common. There's a lot of similarities between that and the early church in Jerusalem. That You could kind of make the case that the early church in Jerusalem was at least familiar with the way the Essenes were living and kind of replicated that in some way, except they were like, well, but this is these are still our property. We still, we, we're doing this voluntarily. It's not a, a, a requirement to be a part of the community. Um, I read that it was like you had to join the community for a year as an outsider for one full year and then you get baptized but then you didn't fully participate in the society for until another two years. It was like a three year long process. It was really interesting. Um, uh, let's see here. What are some other things about uh, about the Essenes? And then I, I did I skip the zealots? Okay, the zealots were the ones that were very militaristic, and they were the the, the terrorists. Um, they were they were trying to subvert the Roman Empire through small terrorist activities. Um, they would carry they were sometimes known as the dagger bearers. They would carry little daggers in their cloaks, and if they could get a you know a Roman guard of some kind, they would sneak up behind them and kill them, they, they, would, they would do that. So. Was that like Barabbas maybe? Um, because he, could was, be. he, was, he was accused of murder and the insurrection or whatever. Oh yeah. Correctly. There were a lot of little, little insurrectionists through, through uh, history and you can see some of those in the New Testament timeline which we didn't get to but yeah, it's very very much whether he was a common murderer or, or was uh, a Roman yeah, that's that may be significant. That might the release of him, you know, like that. Yeah. Uh, the disciples. Which of these groups do you think are represented in Jesus's group of twelve disciples? None. None of these guys. Simon oh, the zealot. There's yeah. Simon the Zealot. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I would Duh. guess that more than half of them were represented. Yeah. 
That more than half of the disciples were part of these groups? No, no, that more than half of these four groups. I, I would oh, not yeah. be surprised if all four were represented. Yeah. 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 Do you, do you know that the answer, or are you going to leave us in suspense? I don't really know the answer. I just think it's kind of an interesting, an interesting thing to think about. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised when Jesus sent them out two by two if he took... Simon the Zealot had put him with Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> I told him to do that on something I would picture Jesus doing. Like, oh, you're a conspirator? What do you do for a living? I, I, I tax the Jews for the Romans. What do you do for a living? I stab Romans. <laughs> and some do. And some do. And anybody who goes along with them. So, Okay, so, um, so there... I hope this was helpful to at least get the background leading up to the first century, um, but uh, so that you have a sketch of at least some of the players. So now when you're reading a passage and you read about the Pharisees, hopefully you have a little bit of an understanding of where they came from, um, and the Sadducees and where they're coming from, and how that factors into understanding some of these passages. Also, when they're dealing with a Roman centurion, and Jesus is dealing with a Roman centurion, or Paul is going on his missionary journeys, and he's going to a Greek city, uh, or he's talking with philosophers, and those kind of things. I, I, hopefully, this is very important to get to the background here. And then you'll see there will be points, like Brandon kind of asked a question about this earlier, there will be points where these, these thoughts and ideas are, will be seen in later movements. So they keep coming back. It keeps coming back. And so I thought today it was really helpful to kind of lay out all of these various groups because um, you're going to need to know this as we go along um, in looking at the, the other groups. Um, last passage. Let's turn to Colossians chapter, chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 for us to close. And verses 1 through 11, and, and if we have some volunteers for that, that would be that would be great. We already saw Colossae earlier, right? Do not, do not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Um, he's dealing with the city in Colossae that would be um, under Roman influence, would have been experiencing, you know, to have had a history with the... Uh, the Greek empires and the Syrian things like that, the battles, uh, but under Hellenistic influence for sure. Um, so we saw that earlier. Let's let's see what Paul says in Colossians chapter three, verses one through eleven. And you don't have to read the whole thing; just read as much as you want. Somebody else to take over. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and the obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, 
seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, 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 slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Awesome. Thank you, Marshalls, for saying that. Mm -hmm. So he, this call to holiness and avoiding these kind of evil behaviors, and he has them, uh, he does so by, by telling them they need to take off the old self, put on the new self, re being <coughs> renewed after the image of its creator, and it's here, it's in that idea, here, in the image of its creator, a person who is raised with Christ, who was, was seated with him in the heavenly realms, and is being renewed in the image of its creator, it's here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is <coughs> all and in all. That phrase, Jews, Jews and Greeks, that's, that's a merism. It's kind of like saying all of humanity here. All of humanity... Um, all of the distinctions that we'd have in humanity, when you become a Christian, all of those things fade away and your identity in Christ becomes uh, comes to the forefront. Being in, renewed in the image of your creator, God through Christ. And so there is no Greek or Jew anymore. There is no circumcised, circumcised in Christ if you're raised in him. There is no barbarian, no, no Scythian, no slave, free, no uh, free. Paul in uh, Galatians, he says something very similar. There's no male or female, uh, uh, Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So all of these distinctions and all of these backgrounds that feed into the first century world uh, are very, so important for us to know, to understand what the entrance of the Christian gospel means and what it's facing up against. But also recognize how unique and distinct that is over and against all of it. So Jews, Greeks, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Romans, this doesn't matter. What matters is your identity in Christ. So... Any last questions? No? Charlie, lesson four. <laughs> <laughs>